Our topic is what is worship. This is part two. And we're going to begin looking at the elements of worship. We looked at the main biblical terms for worship in the Old and New Testament and defined them to help give you an idea. We made a distinction between service, which refers to all of life, and worship, public worship, which is coming into the special presence of God. It's unique. And now let's further define worship by looking at the elements of worship, which are very helpful. But first I'm going to read Psalm 100. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all your lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. What a wonderful song. We sang that earlier. Well, let's look at the elements of worship, uh, and this will really help us understand it. One of the best ways to define and understand worship is to examine all the parts or elements of worship that are authorized by Scripture. We're not interested in things that people make up, like the Roman Catholic Church and evangelicals. We're interested in what Scripture says. The Word of God commands certain religious acts to be performed in public worship and also regulates these specific acts as to content and manner of performance. They're regulated. A passage, um, the ordinary elements of worship are listed in the Westminster Confession of Faith as follows. I, fi I found the Westminster Standards, I think, the most helpful on this topic. <clears throat> Number one. Prayer with thanksgiving, 21.3. Number two, the reading of the scriptures, 21.5. Three, the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the word, 21.5. Four, the singing of psalms with grace in the heart, 21.5. And by the way, the word psalms there means psalms, the Bible psalms, not hymns, as modern Presbyterians erroneously teach. If you look at the debates at the Westminster Assembly, and there's, they are available if you look for them, and uh, you'll see that when they talked about what to sing in public worship, the issue was not whether they were going to sing uninspired hymns or not. The issue was what, kind, what psalter, what translation are we going to use? And they went for a very literal, solid translation, the 1650 psalter, which we still use to this day in this church. <clears throat> Number five, the worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ, 21.5, that's two, baptism and the Lord's Supper, not seven. The sacrament of baptism is to be performed when necessary. And the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is generally not required weekly in Reformed churches. Some do, some don't. It is weekly in all sacramentalist communions for obvious reasons. And the frequency of communion is beyond the scope of this study. I've studied it. I did a series on the sacraments many years ago. And um, <clears throat> I don't think it's required weekly, but I, I do think... Uh, it's something that shouldn't be done once a year or twice a year. It should be done, uh, you know, more often. The Reformed divi symbols divide the elements of worship into two categories based on a careful exegesis of Scripture. There are ordinary elements that comprise what is required on, in the weekly Sabbath public worship service. When you have public worship, these are things required by Scripture. 
reading of the word, singing of psalms, preaching the word, hearing the word, etc. They're required every week. There are also extraordinary elements that are occasional as a particular need arises, such as religious oaths and vows, solemn fastings, and special thanksgivings. Okay, uh, if there's a crisis, such as a war or a plague, what do you do? Do you turn to the government and have them print a bunch of fiat currency and inflate the currency and cause all sorts of economic problems? No. You fast and pray. You go to God. If there's sin, you repent. <clears throat> now, to better understand what Christian worship involves, we were do well to uh, briefly examine each element. And uh, today... This afternoon, we're going to look at prayer. <coughs> and uh, there's a lot in Scripture about prayer, so let's, let's get to it. Now, prayer is identified as a crucial part of Christian worship. Although prayer should be an important element of private and family worship, but it also applies to public or corporate worship. And that's what we're, our main topic. Prayer in its broadest sense refers not only to supplications or expressing our spiritual and physical needs to God for ourselves and others, that is intercession. You pray for somebody who's sick or you pray for somebody who's got a sin problem, you're interceding on their behalf. But also, it includes thanksgivings, confessions of sin, adoration and the exaltation of God. And we learn that very uh, effectively by looking at the book of Psalms which is full of prayers, mingled with praise, mingled with theology, mingled with promises, you name it. It's in there, and it's critical. Christian prayer involves the Christian's heart or mind engaged in spiritual intercourse and fellowship with God. And this is seen in the book of Psalms, where many praise songs are prayers or contain elements of praise and exaltation. that prayer, both private and corporate, is an authorized element of worship as taught throughout the Bible. And this is very clear, but let's just review it very briefly. The patriarchs prayed to God in private and family worship. Now keep in mind, uh, the public worship situation will really come in later uh, with the Exodus and Moses, uh, when there'll be a corporate people of God. It's more family-oriented in the earlier parts of the Bible. Genesis twenty seventeen. Uh, 32, 9 to 12, and Job 1, 5. When people of God are organized into a nation or great congregation under Moses, he repeatedly prayed and interceded for the people. Exodus 9, 29 to 32, and of course, uh, uh, Exodus 9, 29, Exodus 32, 11 to 13, Numbers 14, 13 to 19, and 21, 7, etc. Moses repeatedly prayed and interceded for the people. Moses also appointed Aaron and his descendants as priests to offer sacrifices and make intercession on behalf of the covenant people, Numbers 3, 6 to 10. The priesthood. Now, there's a sense in which the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of uh, God in the New Testament are priests, in that we all have access to God through Christ. Uh, especially in the New Covenant era, that's obvious. Uh, and the, pre, the Old Testament priests had to make sacrifices for the people, and they typified Christ. When the congregation gathered at the dedication of the temple, Solomon the king prayed to Yahweh before the whole assembly. 1 Kings 8, 
22 to 53. The King Josiah tore his clothes and wept in prayer before God before instituting the covenant of reformation in 2 Chronicles 34, 26 to 27. And the book of Psalms is full of inspired prayers relating to virtually every problem and contingency that accompanies life. Just, you know, this is a very, Psalm uh, 4, 6, 17, 25, 32, 51, 86, etc. There's more, a lot more than that, but I just mentioned a few. Christ requires that every Christian must pray. It's, we're required to pray. It's not a voluntary thing. We're required by Christ to pray. And even instructed us on how to pray. Matthew 6, 9 to uh, 13, the Lord's Prayer, obviously. Uh, 21, 41. Mark eleven twenty four, and then Luke eleven two to four. He was also the supreme example of dedication to prayer and private communing with God. Matthew fourteen twenty three and twenty six, and thirty six and follow. Uh, excuse me, Matthew fourteen twenty three, twenty six thirty six and following. Mark six forty six fourteen thirty two Luke five sixteen, twenty two forty one to forty four, and John seventeen the, the high priestly prayer. In the Apostolic Church, we have many examples of the Apostles engaging in prayer and whole congregations praying together. Acts 124 24-25, 242-31-64, 10-30-31, 12-5-12, 16-13. It's crystal clear, especially in the book of Acts, that the congregations got together and they prayed. The teacher would lead in prayer and the people would pray. The New Testament epistles are full of commands and instructions regarding prayer. Philippians 4, 6-7, Romans 8, 26, Ephesians 6, 18, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, 1 Timothy 2, 8, James 1, 5-8 and 4, 3, 1 John 1, 9, and 1 John 5, 14-15, etc. So, prayer is required in private and public worship, and it's regulated very carefully by scripture. That is very clear. That is very obvious in both the Old and the New Testament. Regarding prayer, here's what Calvin writes. This is from his Institutes, and I think it's a wonderful statement. That's why I included it. Calvin writes this. Words fail to explain how necessary prayer is and in how many ways the exercise of prayer is profitable. Surely, with good reason, the Heavenly Father affirms that the only stronghold of safety is in calling his name. Uh, when you get a chance, look at Joel 2.32. By doing so, we invoke the presence both of his providence, through which he watches over and guards our affairs, and of his power, through which he sustains us, weak as we are, and well nigh overcome, and of his goodness, through which he receives us, miserably burdened with sins, unto grace, and in short, it is by prayer that we call him to reveal himself as wholly present, to us. End of quote. Just a beautiful statement. Meditate on that. Think about that. We don't pray as we ought. We don't pray as often as we ought. We should have an attitude of prayer throughout the whole day. We should think about God. We should be communing with God throughout the whole day. Very important. <clears throat> Although prayer and praise often have many things in common, they are clearly different elements that have separate and distinct warrants as to who may perform these acts in public worship and as to their verbal content. 
a study of prayer and the nature of prayer itself makes itself abundantly clear that we are permitted to compose or make up our own prayers as the need arises. As long as we carefully follow the pattern set for us by Christ, for example, the Lord's Prayer, and follow biblical principles. And it's obvious. I mean, it's just common sense. With prayer, where you're making petitions regarding particular needs in life, let's say your wife has cancer, or let's say uh, one of your children is ill, or whatever, or that there's a problem in the church, somebody's getting divorced, or there's some kind of situation. You need to make up your own prayers to deal with the contingencies of life. That's just obvious. Praise, however, is treated differently by Scripture. The element of praise and worship, however, is quite different, and a study of all the passages that deal with singing and worship reveal that divine inspiration was a prerequisite for composing worship songs. And I, I'm not going to quote anything, because I, it's beyond the purview of this, but if you look at my book on exclusive psalmody, and uh, I've preached on this as well, uh, go look up all those passages about praise and who's writing the songs. They're all prophets. They're all inspired by God. There's not one example in the whole Bible of somebody writing a worship song for public worship that is not inspired. David, Asaph, all these people were inspired by God to write worship songs. Now, why is that? Well, I don't know. But it makes a lot of sense when you take into account that we can only approach God as he commands in his word. God is perfect, infinite perfections, and obviously he wants us to approach him with infallible, inspired singing. And we'll deal with that more when we talk about the praise section. It is crucial that we allow scripture itself, using traditional exegesis, that carefully takes into account both content and context to define the warrant and nature of each worship element. We must not allow current practice and declension to influence our interpretation of Scripture. And that's what most people do today. They go with the flow, whatever's popular. That's not how we're supposed to be as Christians. We're supposed to follow what Scripture says carefully, precisely, promptly, and sincerely. There are a number of things to keep in mind regarding prayer. Let's look at some of them. Number one, and this is based largely on uh, what's delineated in the Westminster Confession. <clears throat> prayer is required of all men through Jesus due to the fact that we have been created by God. Okay, we're his creatures. We're obligated to worship God because we're his creatures. He made us, not we ourselves. And we are sinful. We're saved by grace. So we're, as creatures, we owe him obeisance, and as saved sinners, we especially owe him worship. Unregenerate men, of course, are unable to pray in a moral or acceptable manner because we can only approach God through Jesus Christ and his redemptive work. I remember many years ago, uh, Jerry Falwell, I think it was Jerry Falwell, said in a sermon, and it got on, picked up by the national news media, that uh, God doesn't hear the prayers of uh, Muslims or Jews, because they're not praying in Christ's name. They're not praying through Christ. And he caught all sorts of flack, and I don't, I, think, I don't think he backed down. But he's correct. You have to go to God through Christ. It's the only way to God. No one can come to the Father except by me. And the Old Testament prayer to God had to be accompanied by blood sacrifices and burnt offerings that pointed men to the Lamb of God to come. 
Sacrifice first, then came prayer. Because Yahweh is infinitely holy and righteous, one must be redeemed and justified by the Savior's blood and righteousness before God will hear his prayers. And we see that beautifully in the Old Testament where uh, uh, the man is in the throne room of God. I think, what is it, Zechariah? And, and, and the, uh, the angel says, uh, remove his filthy garments and put the robes on him. In other words, he's unworthy to be in God's presence. Take off those filthy robes, which represents his sin and guilt, and put on these righteous robes, of, which symbolize the righteousness of Christ. It is why Christians are told to pray in the name of Christ. Ephesians 5.20, Colossians 3.17, etc. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. Paul says, through him, we both, that's Jews and Gentiles, have access by one spirit to the Father, Ephesians 2, 18. Colossians 3, 17. We are only to give thanks to God through him, Paul says that. And keep in mind, it's not simply enough to say, in the name of Christ, or to speak these words mindlessly and not even think about them. When we pray, we must have faith in Jesus and his perfect redemptive work. We must trust in his righteousness, place all our hopes in his blood mediation. God does not answer our prayers or listen to us because we deserve it or because we have earned it. If you think that way, you'll never pray because we're filthy, rotten sinners. Of course we don't deserve it. But solely on account of Christ and his work, Hebrews 4.16, therefore let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. And the context of that is Christ's mediation, Christ's sacrificial death and his uh, mediating at the right hand of God on our behalf. We can come boldly into the throne of grace due to Christ, not because of us. 1 Peter 5.7, cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Christians, as we've noted, have a special reason to pray. For we've been reconciled to God through Jesus and adopted into his own family. The words, our Father, Matthew 6, 9, the Lord's Prayer, are covenantal language. Our Father. We have a personal God, a loving God, a merciful God. This term of affection indicates that Jesus has expiated our sins and propitiated God's wrath. He's removed it. That God is our covenant God and our friend waiting to, to welcome us through Christ. Because we are forgiven and clothed with our Lord's perfect righteousness, we have communion with God and now come boldly into his special presence, Hebrews 4.16. In fact, all worship must be offered through Christ and his mediation or present personal intercession as our heavenly high priest. And that's from Hebrews. I forgot to look it up. I'll have to look it up later. And not only is our high priest, it says in Hebrews that whatever he does he, in, his, in his mediation is effective because he is the Son of God. He is sinless. He is the Savior. 
Remember, prayer is necessary on account of the created order itself. We are creatures. We owe God everything, our existence, the air we breathe, the food we eat, our clothes. Everything we have is due to God and his, and his loving providence. It is commanded in Scripture for man was created to communicate and commune with God. God created Adam and Eve to have fellowship with them and to commune with them and to talk with them in the garden every day. Even though unbelievers are separated from God and under his wrath, the Bible presents a refusal to call upon the true God in prayer and worship as a great sin, as a hideous form of rebellion. You know, I'm out there in California, and California's thoroughly heathen. Now, there's quite a few nice Christians out there, but California's thoroughly heathen, very liberal, and they've got the most beautiful scenery around, beautiful beaches, beautiful mountains, beautiful lakes, beautiful uh, trees, redwood forests, etc. And these heathen who enjoy all this, and they live out there because of the scenery and the weather. How could you not, how could you look at a redwood forest and not thank God? How could you look at a beautiful Alpine Lake and not thank God? How could you look at the gorgeous beach and the beautiful sunset and not thank God? It's a serious sin not to thank God for what we have. Jeremiah 10.25 says this, Pour out your fury on the Gentiles who do not call upon your name. Psalm 10.4 The wicked in his proud continence does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. So not having a desire for God, not communing with God, not praying to God, not worshiping God, not giving God his due is a serious, heinous sin in God's sight. Prayer is an appointed means of grace. To reject it or neglect it is the height of folly. People who reject Jesus Christ and refuse to pray to God through him, they can still pray. Pagans pray all the time. A lot of them do. But God regards their heathen prayers as idolatrous as an abomination. Proverbs 15.8 If you pray to God standing on your own merits, God can't listen to you. I mean, he won't, he won't heed your prayers at all. Number two. Believers can only pray as they ought with the help of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, Ephesians 6.18, that we are to pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Romans 8.26-27, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what is what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, due to our finite being and the effects of the fall, we often do not know how to pray as the ex exigencies of our situation demands. Consequently, the Holy Spirit comes to our aid both as a divine, omniscient, loving intercessor who lives in our hearts, see John 14, 16 to 17, and also as our sanctifier who reveals to us our sins and guides us into all truth through his inspired word. We need the Holy Spirit to pray properly. 
the more we are led by the Spirit of God, the more biblical and appropriate our prayers will be. Our intercessor at the right hand of God and the holy intercessor in our hearts knows what we need far better than we do. He's omniscient. He knows scripture. Wait, you know, infinitely perfectly. The word paraclete, which means advocate, it's, it's the language of a lawyer, somebody's advocating on your behalf before God, is used of the Holy Spirit, John 14, 13 to 14, 16, 23 to 24, as well as Christ, 1 John 2, 1. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. When it is used of the Holy Spirit, it is usually translated comforter. For example, John 14, 16. The Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. The Spirit himself, uh, Romans 8, 26b, and this is how, how the grammar should translate it, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings and helps us form our own prayers so that we are there in accordance with Scripture and God's will. A person filled and guided by the Holy Spirit will ask for biblical things and not vain, worldly nonsense. As James says in James 4.3, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, given the fact that we are to make up our own prayers with the assistance, guidance, and illumination of the Holy Spirit as he applies scriptures to our hearts, as we follow the pattern or outline of prayer set, commanded to us by Christ, the Lord's Prayer, which is given to us in Matthew and Luke. Reformed or Puritan churches were opposed to the use of prayer books, where the same words, with minor variations according to the church calendar, are used week after week after week. Now, this does not mean that we cannot meditate on what to pray ahead of time. I think that's a wise thing to do. And it doesn't mean... Um, that we cannot make a list of concerns or even write down prayers on occasion. It also does not mean that prayer books are intrinsically wrong. They are very useful. The, the original Presbyterians had a prayer book to teach people how to pray. They teach new believers how to pray, and they're very useful in missionary situations where you have people coming out of paganism. But the prelatic or Episcopal use of prayer books is unscriptural because we must learn to form our own prayers to fit the current and constantly changing contingencies of life. I have prayer books. I have, I have the old, I, I went to an Episcopal seminary. They're useful. They're helpful. I encourage you to have a good prayer book, a conservative prayer book, and read it. Learn how to pray better. I have no problem with that. And then number three, and this is rather obvious, but the Bible teaches that we are only to pray for things that are good, lawful, or biblical. Now, this point's obvious, but it is violated all the time. We must not pray for the fulfillment of unlawful lusts or goals. Our Lord's moral commandments, our progressive sanctification, the church's spiritual and numerical growth, the displacement and overthrow of the satanic pagan kingdoms and empires, as well as the comprehensive adoption of God's moral law in society, must take precedence over personal riches and material possessions. 
as Jesus said, Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Don't, your life is not to be focused on getting rich or material possessions. Your life is to focus on serving Christ. If you serve Christ and obey the moral commandments and follow biblical principles of economics, you will do quite well financially because you're not wasting your money on a bunch of stupid stuff. And that's why we talk about uh, Max Weber, the Puritan work ethic. He did a bunch of studies. He's not even a Christian, but he did a bunch of study. Why is it that where, wherever the Puritans and, and Protestants had power, they have the best economies and the most lawful societies in the world? Why do they have the Puritan work ethic? Because of biblical principles being applied to, to daily life. Did they set out to become rich and to prosper that way? No, their interest was serving Christ. But when you serve Christ and you follow biblical principles, you will do well because you don't have debt. You don't buy things you can't afford. You don't live like an idiot to impress your neighbors. Unlawful desires must be repented of, and the desire for things that are unwise, unprofitable, and unnecessary must be set aside. Our concern is on the advancement of our own spiritual growth and those of our families, Christian friends, and churches, not fancy cars and mansions. 1 Timothy 6, 5-6 and 10. We are taught also to pray for all kinds of men, including those in authority over us. 1 Timothy 2, 1-2. If you look at prayer books, there's a prayer for the governor, there's a prayer for the president, there's a prayer for, you know, if you're in a nation with a king or queen, there's a prayer for a king or queen. Now, obviously, you don't pray for them to prosper in their insanity and in their wickedness and their Satanism. You pray for them to repent and obey the scriptures, and you pray that if they don't do that, that God would judge them for it. And God would overthrow them and replace them with somebody who is more in line with Scripture. This would include for petitions for their salvation if necessary, and even imprecatory prayers for evil leaders who are working against the leavening influence of Christ's kingdom. And I have a really good article, I think it's on the internet, on reformedonline.com, on uh, the imprecatory psalms. When speaking about the need to pray for things that are biblical, there are two common errors regarding prayer that merit discussion. The first regards the teachings of heretical prosperity preachers, you know, your Kenneth, Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, uh, and those kind of people, Joel Olstein, who teach that God expects all believers to be materially rich as long as they have the faith to, to claim it. This idea that you know, God saved you so you can be rich and drive a Cadillac or a Mercedes. Although the Bible does connect prosperity or covenant blessings to a faithful or habitual practice of God's moral law, covenant faithfulness, in a general corporate sense, the idea of seeking riches as an important aspect of our salvific blessings is clearly unscriptural. Totally unscriptural. We are not to place a priority on material wealth or possessions, Matthew 6.33 and are supposed to be content with our lot in life. Paul warns us about men who look at the faith or godliness as a means of gain. He says, from such withdraw yourself, 1 Timothy 6.5. And then he adds, now godliness with contentment is great gain. Be content. Now, I'm not saying don't plan for the future. Don't buy a house and, and be wise with your investments. I'm not saying that. But when people's priority is to be rich and show off how fancy their car is and their, their clothes, uh, they're thinking like a pagan. 
Another common and very old error is the Roman Catholic teaching that we are to pray for the dead. And there are a number of problems with this idea. A, the doctrine of purgatory, where Christians who are not good enough and are guilty of venial sins must go after death to suffer and pay until they are fit for heaven, is totally unscriptural. The Bible teaches that small a, Jesus' sacrificial death is perfect and sufficient, and that since he has paid the price in full for our sins, redemption, the idea of Christians going through the purifying fires of purgatory, which is taught in the Council of Trent, Session 25, before they can enter heaven, is demonic. It is an explicit denial of the meaning of Christ's atonement or death on the cross. He paid the price in full. B. The moment that Christians die, they go immediately to heaven to be with Christ. Paul, 2 Corinthians 5.8, to die is to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Philippians 1.23, I desire to depart and be with Christ. The, man, the thief on the cross. Today, Jesus said to him, Luke 23.43, today you will be with me in paradise. And then John 5.24, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has, has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, which is what purgatory is, but has passed from death unto life. And then C, the idea of praying for Christians in purgatory or donating money or going on a pilgrimage, gets very popular. I was raised Roman Catholic. The priest would ask for donations. And if you give donations, if you give them money, then they'll have a special mass for your relatives that are in purgatory. And so people give over thousands and thousands of dollars because they want to get old Uncle Bob out of purgatory. Uh, th that whole idea is, is totally satanic. All that comes from the Romanist heresy of justification by faith, plus our subjective good works that flow from faith. Jesus' precious blood removes all of our sins, and his imputed righteousness makes us immediately fit for heaven. Now, once again, does the Bible require us to repent, to have good works? Absolutely. Do these things contribute to our salvation? Not one iota. Faith without works is dead. It's not real faith. So you've got to have works, but works don't do anything to save you. It's all of Christ, every bit of it. And then D. Paul says, Hebrews 9.27, It is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. King David immediately stopped praying for his child once he found out that the child was dead. 2 Samuel 12, 22-23. And Jesus made it very clear that there are only two places one can go after death, heaven or hell. Heaven or hell, there's not a third place. Matthew 25, 26-41. The two alternatives, according to Christ, verse 46, are everlasting punishment or eternal life. Those are the only two places in Scripture. And then B, the doctrine of purgatory is a human tradition that was not known, taught, or believed by professing Christians until after A.D. 600 when Pope Gregory the Great came up with the idea of a third state for Christians who are not good enough for heaven. He made it up. He made it up. Now, was he influenced by other things? I'm sure he was. But it's not in the Bible. I know they appeal to a passage, I think it's in Maccabees, or it's, which is an extra-biblical literature. It's not inspired. It's not part of Scripture. 
It did not become the official dogma of the Roman Catholic Church until the Council of Florence in 1459, and then it was reaffirmed and solidified at the Council of Trent 90 years later. So when you have something being taught that's not in Scripture at all, and it explicitly contradicts Scripture, and you can look at church history and find out who made it up and where did it come from, you've got a serious problem. You need to disobey that. And then number three. The Bible requires that prayer is to be made in our own native tongue. Prayer is to be intelligible to everyone in the congregation so all can participate and say amen, whether in thought, in their mind, or verbally. And this point seems rather obvious, but it has been and continues to be violated in two ways. The Papal Church for over 1,500 years conducted their liturgy in Latin. It was only changed in the early 1960s, Vatican II, uh, where they say you should have the church in the native tongue. But until the 1960s, it was in Latin. Long after Latin was no longer spoken or understood by the people. Apparently such behavior was supposed to be majestic and mystical and supposedly honored tradition. But it was unbiblical and helped keep the people in darkness. How are you supposed to benefit from something you have no idea what's going on? How is this supposed to benefit you? People cannot be edified and properly participate in worship when they have no idea what is going on. So that's one violation. And yes, there are still conservative Roman Catholic Church who conduct the Mass in Latin. And they're considered to be more conservative. They're anti-Vatican too. They're thoroughly unscriptural. Another clear violation is the Pentecostal or charismatic practice of praying in what is called tongues. It's not real tongues. It, it contradicts the Bible definition of tongues. The pra practice is problematic for a few reasons. One is that biblical tongues, which, which were real languages, have ceased. 1 Corinthians 13.8. Glossolalia. If you study tongues in the Bible, uh, they're real languages and they had to be translated. It wasn't just yabba dabba do, scooby dooby doo, Toyota Honda, give me a Honda, give me a Honda Toyota, Ford 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 Chevy. That's not what tongues are. They're real languages somewhere in the world. Consequently, what is practiced today is nonsensical gibberish. Yabba dabba dooba. The other reason is that Paul requ requires tongues to be translated. First Corinthians fourteen twenty seven to twenty eight. If there is no translator or interpreter who can tell the people the meaning of the words, the apostle says, let him keep silent in church, 1 Corinthians 14.28. Paul says that in public worship, he would rather speak five words that could be understood than 10,000 words that could not be understood, 1 Corinthians 14.19. So we must pray with understanding or our prayers are unfruitful, 1 Corinthians 14, 14. Now, by way of application, we could say that our words and thoughts must also be rooted in biblical definitions, the scriptural world and life view, and a certain knowledge of Christian theology. Okay, obviously you want to be using words as defined by scripture, not by secular humanism or paganism. If we stand on solid Christian doctrine, our prayers will not become worldly and vain. 
As James says, we ask and do not receive because we ask amiss. James 4.3. And then I'll just start this because I never finish this. We'll continue this. It's my last point on prayer and I didn't finish it. The prayer should be made with a proper attitude in a correct biblical manner. Number four. Some of the things we need to keep in mind are as follows. And this is, once again, these principles are simple and obvious, but we need to be reminded of them. Prayer must be done with faith in God, Christ, and the sacred scriptures. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can't come to God without faith in Christ. We can only believe in the promises of God if we trust in God and his word. We can only believe that our prayers will be answered if we rely on God and petition God according to his revealed will in scripture. James 1.6. We're supposed to ask according to the will of God. And then B. We must approach the throne of grace with great humility. We understand that in and of ourselves we deserve nothing but wrath and judgment. But we have been justified and saved solely due to the merits of Christ. As Abraham said, Genesis 18, 27. Indeed now, I, who am but dust and ashes, have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. And note also David, who prayed uh, Psalm 51, 1 and 3. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, for I acknowledge my transgressions. We are not only God's creatures, who owe everything to God, but we are sinful creatures, saved solely due to God's grace and mercy in Christ. So the whole point of prayer is to approach God in a spirit of humility, looking solely to Christ for our merits, for our salvation, for our redemption. And we'll stop there. I ran out of, I ran out of time. But uh, a simple topic, but a crucial topic. Let us make sure that we set aside times every day to pray, and I really think that you should learn throughout the day. You're taking a walk. Pray to God. Talk to God. You look at a beautiful sunset. Thank God. Say some words to God. Be in communion with God throughout the day. Think about Christ and what God has done for you all every day, all throughout the day. Christianity is not some something simply for public worship on Sunday. It's for all of life. We are to serve God our bodies are to be living sacrifices unto God throughout every day, throughout our whole lives. That's why we're here, to serve God, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So let us remember that. We'll continue, Lord willing, next week. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much that we can come to you as your children, your covenant children due to what Christ has achieved. We ask you to forgive us, Lord, for not praying as much as we ought and as biblical as we ought. Help us to be more obedient, more faithful. Teach us how to pray. Remind us by the power of your Holy Spirit to pray often, to commune with you. We, when we don't commune, it's because of our lack of faith. We're not trusting in Christ enough. We're looking too much at ourselves and our wickedness. But help us to focus on Christ and come to your throne boldly through him and what he has achieved. For we have nothing in and of ourselves by which to approach you. We thank you for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.